Well, hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to this episode of the Thursday Morning Report. This was a project I did a few years back in partnership with Mendocino County Public Broadcasting, where I volunteered as an engineer, host, and producer. Enjoy this one-hour interview program that went out live over the radio on KZYX. If you like what you are hearing, you can check out my current podcast, The Shift with Doug McKenty, on your favorite podcast hosting site, or find out more on Facebook and YouTube at The Shift with Doug McKenty. I'm also on Twitter at McKenty. If you want to support the program, look up The Shift on Patreon, or find it on the web at www.theshiftnow.com and click on subscribe. Subscribers receive access to full-length feature episodes of The Shift, as well as the membership forum, where members can engage in discussions and participate in the evolution of the show. Stay tuned for this episode of the Thursday Morning Report from KZYX Radio in Mendocino County, California. Stay tuned in just a few moments for the Thursday Morning Report. I'll be your host, Doug McKenty. This morning I am speaking with Michael Rupert, a former editor of From the Wilderness, the author of two books, Crossing the Rubicon, The Decline of the American Empire at the End of the Age of Oil, as well as Confronting Collapse. He was the focus of the 2008 documentary Collapse and now manages the website CollapseNet.com. Uh, Michael, are you there? I am indeed. Good morning. Excellent. How are you doing this morning? Pretty good. I'm, 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 I'm all the way down south in Sebastopol, so it's a long way away. Yeah, there you go. It's a little foggy and overcast. going to be a great day, though. Yeah, I'm feeling it, too. I think we're going to have a great day up here in Mendocino. Well, you want to just uh, kind of get started here by telling us a little bit about yourself and how you got started in the uh, independent journalism business? <laughs> <laughs> well, well, we know that's a long story. Don't right, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let's try to uh, keep it to less than an hour. <laughs> yeah, my God. I mean, 30-some uh, years ago, 1976, I was a Los Angeles police officer uh, working in uh, detectives and narcotics, and uh, I was being recruited uh, by the Central Intelligence Agency. I come from a CIA family. My mother was a cryptanalyst for the Army Security Agency, later NSA. Uh, my father uh, was an Air Force uh, aviator veteran, uh, also with CIA relatives who went to work for Martin Lockheed on uh, the boosters for CIA spy satellites. And so I grew up in that community. And uh, I was exposed to uh, an operation with a recruitment pitch that would have involved me uh, protecting drug shipments coming into the country for the CIA. And I became a whistleblower. I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't cross that line. And so uh, as a, having had the experience of being a uh, detective and building cases, I started doing research days long before we had an Internet or anything like that. Uh, to uh, to try and understand what it was I had uncovered that uh, that evolved into a, an evolution where I became a freelance writer and investigative journalist. I had a confrontation uh, 18 years after the fact with CIA Director John Deutsch at Locke High School in uh, November of, of 1996, which kind of put me on the map globally. And by 1998, we started from the Wilderness, which published for eight years. Uh, uh, many, many, many uh, detailed, in-depth in, in uh, investigative pieces were published there, the, the, the last and biggest being the Pat Tillman cover-up, which we broke at FTW. Mm. Um, and uh, I, uh, around, around 2001, shortly after 9-11, I became aware of this thing called peak oil. And peak oil uh, fit hand-in-glove and uh, kind of was, was the tuning fork for this orchestra of chaos that seems to be planning now. And, of course, now, all these years uh, after 2001, we see that peak oil is in full bloom and it's having its predicted devastating uh, effects on uh, on the, the infinite growth paradigm and the global economy, uh, which are made worse by all of the corruption uh, in the in the 
politics and economics around the world. Here I am. Yeah, there you go. Um, before we get into the peak oil conversation, I just wanted to have a, a quick uh, chat about uh, the mainstream media and what you've kind of discovered about the mainstream media. And as you did your own research, uh, what did you start to think about most of what you heard uh, in the news uh, through, through the mainstream media? Well, by, by 1998, really when I started from the wilderness, I was already focusing uh, in depth on uh, economic issues, having discovered just that everything in, in the financial markets is corrupt, crooked, uh, all the books are cooked everywhere on everything. Uh, but mainstream media, given that it's owned by major corporations which trade their stock on Wall Street, is, is absolutely uh, not uh, unbiased and impartial. They have had an agenda all along to conceal from us uh, limits to growth and all of these things that are happening now because they needed to perpetuate belief in a system that was dying. And now for, for, for many of us who watch mainstream news reports now, they are beyond schizophrenic. It's uh, mainstream media is like having a psychotic break. It's impossible to, for, for me to watch anything on mainstream news without saying these people are out of their minds. Uh, and I think that the ability of mainstream media to influence, direct, and guide public opinion is is weakening rapidly. So, um, where do you get most of your information then, if not from the mainstream media? Or how, how do you find, uh, and then how do you put together uh, your your particular worldview? Well, we uh, at, at at CollapseNet we have refined uh, a research and investigative process that I developed it from the wilderness over uh, over a decade, eight, eight years or so plus, and we've still refined since. Where we scour mainstream news sources, but when I say mainstream, I, I don't want to mislead you. I'm talking about the stuff that gets all the TV coverage and all the stuff that gets headlines. That's uh, that's uh, that's really cooked soup that uh, that is more intended to influence public opinion than, than convey the truth. But within mainstream news sources, we scan the world every day. There are uh, three of us who, who do this, and we compile a list of anywhere in between 80 and 150 stories, which I read every day, uh, from mainstream sources. But they're Bloomberg news stories, they're Financial Times stories, they're Guardian Independent, they're uh, CNBC that do not get played on the television, but these are the print stories that uh, that tell the people who the the powers that be what's really going on uh, under the surface, uh, and you have to know how to look for them. And then we compile them every day, and I've been an a- analyzing them with with amazingly uh, good results now for the year that CollapseNet has been in business in terms of being able to predict future events and analyze what's going on right now. There's a different art to it. There's so much out there on the Internet uh, that you really have to know where and how to look to find the stories that tell you what really is going on. Yeah, how has the Internet changed your ability to do this kind of research? I mean, it's it's almost <laughs> incredible how much information is out there now. Yeah, well, it's... It, 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 it's of course been a mixed blessing, uh, as I said in uh, in the movie Collapse. You have to learn uh, how to separate the ice cream from the BS. Uh, but the ice cream is definitely out there, uh, and I think the record of our predictions at Collapse Net before that on my blog and at FTW speaks for itself on that. Um, uh, but uh, the internet has been a tremendous asset, and it has expedited the learning curves of a lot of us out here. And I'm not the only one anymore. Obviously, there's people like Chris Martinson. Nicole Foss, the Dmitry Orloff. There's there's a whole bunch of us out here uh, who have been doing and saying exactly the same thing, and we're all on the same page. <laughs> this is the collapse of human industrial civilization. 
So over the course of the years, uh, what have what kind of paradigm have you developed about politics? I mean, when you look at the political system, what do you see and how does that differ from, say, the average American or certainly what the average person gets uh, from the mainstream media's point of view? Well, I don't know what average is anymore right. uh, because there is a huge shift in consciousness taking place all over the planet. Um, and there are almost two different uh, species of consciousness living now. I just did a speech in uh, Grass Valley called uh, The Birth of Post-Petroleum Human, which I'm seeing as, as a, a new species, kind of outside the matrix, if you will, to relate it to a, to a movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, uh, well, I'm sorry, what was the question again? Well, I just wanted to try to get your overall, uh, say, the, the political paradigm. What, what do you see when you look at the, the functioning of, of the political oh. system Versus, say, the, the old school, uh, you know, left-right paradigm. The the political paradigm, as we have known it, is dead. It's dying. It is. It it, it is. If it, it, it it's it's a dinosaur stumbling along in a new climate environment after the asteroid strike. Um, all governments are failing everywhere now. Uh, there is no one, I don't think, in any country in the world, whether it be uh, Europe, let's say Greece, Italy, Spain, Ireland, wherever, or uh, in Asia, in Pakistan, China, anywhere else, the United States, Japan especially, uh, uh, who can say that governments are making decisions that are making people's lives better. All we see happening all around us now is government making decisions that always make our lives worse. And I see no hope. For that, and, and I think it's absolutely futile to engage in any political process now uh, along the lines of the old paradigm uh, to try and achieve anything. Uh, uh, at, at, at CollapseNet, many of us who have been uh, preparing for collapse and predicting these times, we all agree that what we need to do, what all of us need to do to survive, is to disengage from the political and economic process as much as possible to create a safe distance. Otherwise, it's going to take everybody down with it. And do you think, is this just a kind of an ignorance that's going on by the, the people that are involved in the government now? Or exactly why uh, are, are they on such a wrong track? You know, why can't they focus on, uh, why aren't they helping the people to make this transition? Or do they just not know about peak oil? Or what is their point of view about this? They're at an evolutionary dead end. They, you know, when the only tool you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Mm-hmm. Um, and th- these are all the response mechanisms available to mainstream media and politicians now. We have, uh, we're about to, de- to default in the United States. We have, we've, we've reached or passed the debt ceiling. We have a little tiny window until August, which I, I'm not sure we're going to make, but we might. Uh, where, uh, where there's no more debt possible, and we have a Congress needing to cut tens of trillions of dollars from government expenditures uh, that's arguing over minuscule cuts that have no impact on reducing U.S. debt. And that's the same case in every country around the world right now. Europe is uh, falling apart. Japan is the most indebted nation in the world. And and as a result of Fukushima, Japan is dead. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, clearly... There is a consciousness that is uh, that is emerging, and we're addressing a collapse net. We just launched uh, almost a year ago, last June, and we're now in 63 countries around the world. So there's there's a lot of people aware of what's going on who are refusing to play in the sandbox that's been drawn for us anymore. Yeah, that's excellent. 
Um, will you talk just for a second? Because CollapseNet are one of the few people that are even covering Fukushima anymore. It's like the rest of the world has uh, has mm-hmm. it just ignored it. You've got links to uh, Arnie Gunderson's yeah. website and actually are keeping people informed because it's getting much worse. Yes. Yeah, uh, and, and, and a big tribute to Arnie Gunderson at Fairwinds, yeah. F-A-I-R-E-W-I-N-D-S dot org. He has been just a just a giant and a and, and and a true elder throughout all of this, giving us really tough reports about the condition of the reactors, not only in Fukushima but elsewhere in Japan. Uh, I, I should also add, Nicole Foss and Zero Hedge have been doing a great job on that. Japan is dead, and 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 it's lost like somewhere around 20 gigawatts of, of uh, electrical generating capacity because not, not, not only the Daiichi reactors, but the Daini reactors are shut down, Hamaoka reactors are shut down. Uh, there's two or three other sites that have had trouble. All those reactors are shut down, and it's axiomatic that industrial civilization cannot function without electricity. And uh, Japan is a vital organ in the world economy, like a liver, like a lung, like a heart. Uh, and the supply chain disruptions are destroying now the, the whole body, as I predicted back in April. Uh, but Japan is dead. And that is something that uh, is too frightening for the old paradigm to see. And, uh, uh, you know, if you ask me any day since March 10th, there has been no bigger story in the world anywhere other than Fukushima. There is nothing more significant than, than what, what the effects uh, of that uh, are on, on all of us. Yeah. I've been amazed at how it hasn't been covered, uh, you know, since the first couple of weeks. Uh, it's almost completely ignored by the mainstream at this point, uh, and yet it's getting worse. We're looking at three, three total meltdowns, it looks like, there at the Daiichi plant. Um, so, uh, I, yeah. you know, just another example, I guess, of, of how uh, the, you know if you're if they they just kind of pass by these major events and and uh, treat them as uh, if I like to say you know there's nothing to see here, move along. <laughs> well, you know, when in if, fact there is something to see, and we should all be paying attention. If you think about it, Doug, let's go back to Katrina. Isn't that the same way we treated Katrina? Sure. Isn't that the same way we treated Deepwater Horizon? Uh, you know, hey, the, the seafood in the Gulf is safe to eat, and there's no problem here. A bunch of bacteria showed up and ate all the oil, and everything is fine. Right. When, when, when we see uh, tens of thousands of people sickened, dying throughout the Gulf region, uh, and that's one thing about this, this uh, current state of affairs that makes it even more dangerous is, is because everything gets passed over, and it's like everybody's just waiting for the next new mega crisis to come along so we can kind of sweep the last one under the rug. But they're all taking their toll. Yeah, I mean, I think eventually, I don't know, you know, you like to think this is helping people to wake up. I know with the, uh, you know, the, the Deepwater Horizon incident, I was just blown away. They were talking about 5,000 barrels a day, you know, forever, mm-hmm. until somebody finally saw a picture and was like, well, wait a minute, that looks like 80,000 barrels a day. And then it's just like, you know, how, how much can they lie to you? You know, how often can the government lie to you? How often can these corporations lie to you before people stop listening? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I, I I remember right after it happened, both Matt Simmons, uh, the late Matt Simmons, a dear friend who was the world's largest energy investment banker at one point, very uh, outspoken guy on on peak oil, and I had both concluded that the flows had to be eighty first eighty thousand, then maybe one hundred and twenty thousand a day, which is what they turned out to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and it was it was as simple as George Orwell said: two plus two equals four. And once you can see that and say that then you really are free. But, uh, of course, a lot of people don't want to do that. 
but it's it, now it's just uh, I just stand back and watch watch what comes out of the both the mainstream and the world, and I say this this course this the state of events that we're living in today was ordained in the five years after 9-11 by all the policy choices that were made. Mm-hmm. Well, before we get into that, uh, I just want to say it's 9-19. I want to thank everybody who's listening to KZYX. Uh, my name is Doug McKenty. This is the Thursday Morning Report. I'm speaking this morning with Mike Rupert. Uh, he is the author of Crossing the Rubicon, The Decline of the American Empire at the End of the Age of Oil and the manager of the website CollapseNet.com. We're talking about uh, peak oil and many other things. Uh, so why don't we get into the whole peak oil situation? Um, I, I think a lot of people are still imagining it. You know, it's even funny because as I was doing research for this interview, I was, um, you know, you'd look up peak oil on the Internet, and with the exception of a few websites, e- even the Wikipedia uh, description of peak oil was sort of like, oh, you know, some people say it's already happened. And but you know these are these are the real uh, skeptics. You know most people think it's in the future sometime, and that's still the the dominant uh, thinking uh, about what's going on. Even though I you know I found that the International Energy Agency has stated that peak oil happened two thousand six. It looks like uh, the record for for pulling oil out of the ground happened in two thousand five. So you can look at the graphs. Uh, but people aren't really talking about it yet. So what, what's going on? <laughs> well, I think people are talking about it again. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but uh, it's like being in a big house where there's a lot of conversations going on in a lot of rooms. The rooms that I'm in, everybody's talking about it, and it's not just right. us who have been uh, who have been uh, warning about it for a decade or more. It's in, in some cases, like Colin Campbell for 20 years, uh, and and Ken DeFace. Um but. Uh, no, it, it is definite. Peak oil is definitely out of the closet. Fadi Barold, who is the chief economist for IEA, recently did an interview on uh, Radio New Zealand. That was like a week after I did a big interview on Radio New Zealand. And this guy, who was the head, the, the uh, chief economist for the International Energy Agency, was five years ago calling people like me doomers. You know, we were getting all of this, uh, all of these pejorative labels about how we were unstable and all that. And now he's completely done a 180, and we were all correct. And what he has acknowledged, let me just paint the picture r- real quickly. Yes, we did. We, meaning uh, planet Earth, did peak in oil production, conventional oil production, in 2006. Uh, the world is now consuming 88 million barrels a day. That's not conventional oil. It's only about 64 million barrels a day of all the oil of what we normally would call oil, where you stick something in the ground or under the seabed to drill oil. The rest of that is made up by tar sands. It's made up by of, uh, of uh, natural gas liquids and ethanol, uh, which is a crime in and of itself. We could do a long time on ethanol. But Fadi Barol has acknowledged that the, the de- decline rates are so steep now, IEA has no place to run or hide, that by 2035, the planet will be down to 16 million barrels a day, no more of conventional oil production. 16 million barrels a day. And when you kind of absorb that and you understand there's a 96% correlation between GDP gas and uh, G- GDP growth and greenhouse gas emissions, uh, that, and there's no replacement for 850 million internal combustion-powered vehicles that run on, uh, run on oil. Uh, it's very clear what's going to happen. Everything is going to shut down, and voila, here we are right now. Yeah, one of the striking um, statistics that you bring up in the documentary Collapse, it takes, uh, 
10 calories to produce one calorie of food? There are 10 calories of hydrocarbon energy, Mm -hmm. uh, either from oil or natural gas, in every calorie or or coal, in in every calorie of food consumed in the industrialized world. That's why the essence of everything that has to do with surviving this collapse has to do, starts first with relocalizing food production. And that's one of the reasons why I'm where I am in Sonoma County, your neighbor to the south, is because there is a consciousness all over this part of California and moving through the Pacific Northwest that relocalization is the most important thing to do. And I'm happy to tell you, man, I'm 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 in this with both feet, both both arms. I'm on two acres now. I got eight or nine food crops in. Awesome. And and it feels good. Yeah, I, I first came to the realization about peak oil when I was working in Colorado on a sustainable farm. And uh, when I started working there, it, it was more out of a, a sense of idealism. And by the time I left, I I was doing it out of a sense of necessity because I really realized, like, wow, uh-huh. you know, everyone's going to have to be living this way. And not only that, but the the huge challenges that are involved in li- living that way. I mean, our our psychology uh, these days, we're also alienated. We're not used to living in community and, and working that closely with each other. Uh, we're so individualistic as a society. It's, uh, it's going to be a, a more radical transition than I think a lot of people realize. Well, what I'm focusing on now is, is, is the number of people who do realize. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, documentary Collapse was amazingly successful. I have to tip my hat to director Chris Smith at Blue Mark Films. He made a magnificent film I didn't have anything to do with the design. He picked my wardrobe, and I didn't know what the questions were before he asked them. Uh, but he, he made a great film, and I've never received any, any compensation because the film's been pirated two million times. Oh. That showed me something very important. I started getting Facebook friends from all over the world, and the messages were really consistent uh, from all five continents. We've been waiting for somebody to say this. We know this is true. Thank you so much. We all thought we were alone, and we are not. We are part uh, of a rapidly emerging new consciousness on this on this planet that's happening in a great many places. And what's so important now to focus on is not the ones who don't get it. I mean, there's the zombies are not going to get it. That's what I call them. They're never going to get it, and the, 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 they will have their uh, their balancing as a result of their own decisions. But what's so joyous now for us, and, 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 and me especially, is to just see how many people in how many countries are doing so much. And that's one of the things we do at CollapseNet. We have a free lighthouse directory with 1,400 hand-picked entries, all having to do with preparation for collapse. And what you see is the amalgamated wisdom of people who have been working, in some cases, for two decades to prepare for this. And they're sharing all of their uh, all of the skills that they've learned, everything from canning, pickling, to insulation, you name it, it's all there. Um, so we focus on saving as many as we can from those who want to be saved. Yeah, very good. Um, let's talk a little bit about the current economic situation and its relationship to peak oil. Do you think there is a correlation between the, the economic collapse and, and the sluggish, quote-unquote, recovery? Yeah, that's that's probably one of the, one of the areas where I contributed the most over the years was to link not only 9-11 to peak oil, which it was, absolutely was, uh, as 9-11 was the pretext to start seizing oil reserves around the world. Um, and, and, and all of that set it in motion like these huge inertia 
moves that have created the current situation. Right now, the global economy is absolutely imploding. Manufacturing is down all over the world. Massive, hyper, massive inflation is ravaging China. The European Union is disintegrating right in front of our eyes. Greece is up for a second bailout, and they will not accept that the terms that the IMF and EU want to impose. Uh, Japan, of course, is is just devastated. It, 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 Japan had a negative 5.2% GDP growth adjusted in the first quarter of 2011, which which didn't include a whole quarter after Fukushima. Hmm. Everything is shutting down, and a lot of that has to do with the line that I gave in the movie Collapse. The final uh, death blow to human industrial civilization will come with the next big oil spike when nobody can afford to buy that oil. And clearly, we're, we're at that point now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's, it's really starting to happen. People need to kind of realize that. Do you personally have an idea of, of the kind of a time frame that we're looking at? Do you think it's going to be another you know, five years or ten years that we have of, of a little bit of breathing room here or, or uh, you know, some kind of a steady decline? How about five minutes? Right. <laughs> or ten minutes. Maybe, uh, maybe ten minutes ago. You know, I, I, and, and you have to say five or ten years until what? I mean, you right. have to find the, the, the point. Um, I have said clearly, I issued an alert to our members at CollapseNet in April, and, and it became clear to me, and, and, and it's being borne out on a daily basis, that we have one full quarter of operations, business operations globally uh, after Fukushima before everything falls apart. Um, that's because GDP is shrinking everywhere as a result of, uh, of Japan. Japan's like the liver for, for the global economy. We have companies like Siemens, like Texas Instruments, like Ford, like GM, uh, aside from all of the Japanese companies that are suffering because they can't get components from Japan. And in the specialized global economy, Japan's the only place that makes and ships them. So you have all of these other companies being affected globally all over the world, from South Africa. We've been tracking it on the World News Desk uh, at uh, Collapse Net since the earthquake. And the earning reports are all showing, hey, man, uh, post-Fukushima, all these companies are cannot report profits. Now, un unlike other economic issues, quarterly earnings can't be hidden because every shareholder has a, a sacred right to know what the earnings were. And you can't really cook those books. So it, come, come July, uh, if we make it that long, and we may not because of the stuff that's happening on the markets today, um, all of the reports will be out showing that, that everything is over because all of the bailouts that, that they keep doing are based upon being repaid as a result of growth. And growth is dead. Yeah, we're looking here in the United States at another round of quantitative easing coming up even before uh, this whole debt ceiling question comes around again, right? So yeah. there, there's yeah. a lot of weakening of, of, the, of the dollar going on in the, in the financial markets. And I'm, I'm, I'm very confident that, uh, that inflation is, uh, and, 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 and a dollar dump is right on us as well, which will spell hyperinflation here. Uh, there may be some... Uh, deflationary pressures for just a very short period, that'll be a blip. I'm not even paying attention to those mm -hmm. right now. But inflation is the word of the day globally. China's being racked by inflation. Quantitative easing, three, all this inflation was triggered by quantitative easing, two. Uh, quantitative easing, two, ends in June. They're going to have to start QE3. But here's the rub with that, is that, and as I said in, in the movie, currency, money, has no power in and of itself. You can't eat it. 
You can't put it in your gas tank. You can't plant it in the ground and grow anything. You can't wear it. Um, so it's only symbolic. And money implies with it the ability to do work, which is energy. And one of the reasons why inflation is, is, is going to be happening is because uh, it will take more and more money to produce less and less results. And the people who are going to suffer uh, are us. All right, let's switch over a little bit because one, uh, talking about peak oil again, um, it seems the solution that the American government is coming up with is just military action. <laughs> um, and you know, I think most of us know the United States military is the, the largest single consumer of petroleum products in the world, so I guess they're probably, it's probably self-preservation for them. <laughs> well, um, as I said clearly in Crossing the Rubicon, and that was the whole premise of Crossing the Rubicon, the events in the five years following uh, uh, September 11, 2001, will determine the course of human history for the next 500 years. And clearly, post-2001, uh, you know, Iraq had nothing to do with 9-11. It was all about seizing oil. We all know that now. Uh, the military approach was set in motion all of these forces that are now chickens coming home to roost. The United States is losing in Afghanistan. And this recent uh, publicity stunt about the death of Osama bin Laden is backfiring all over the region. Pakistan is shifting alliances quickly, and it kind of looks like uh, CIA and covert ops are trying to widen the war uh, in the region with the intent of overthrowing the Pakistani government, which is going to have disastrous results. But right. for all of its money and all of its oil, the U.S. military is not in control. There is a tremendous tectonic shift in power away from the Western Hemisphere towards Asia for as long as that lasts. Yeah, I mean, I I don't know if you've heard about this, but there was a Rand Corporation report a few years ago saying that a, a massive war against a, a major superpower would be necessary to get us out of the of this economic this big economic downturn. It just kind of concerns me that that's the direction they're going, and in Pakistan, maybe even trying to to go China into some kind of military uh, confrontation there. Let's get something straight. Dinosaurs are stupid. Right. <laughs> uh, and that's all they know how to do. And when, when the only tool you have is a hammer, then everything becomes a nail. And, and that's why I have not excluded the possibility of a global superpower nuclear confrontation. Mm -hmm. um, and that's the far end of the extreme. But we could really see the stupidity of the current human paradigm uh, destroying all life on the planet. Uh, spirit forbid that's not going to happen. All right, I've got to take a minute here for a station break. Uh, the time's 9.33. You're listening to the Thursday Morning Report here on KZYX. Uh, I do have a little underwriting here. Support for the Thursday Morning Report comes from our members and from the West Side Renaissance Market. For those who like to support local farms, ranches, and family businesses, there is the West Side Renaissance Market. Ukiah's last neighborhood market is dedicated to supporting the small area producers with 100% local produce, grains, and meats, plus affordable bulk goods to unique treats. Open seven days a week at 1003 West Clay Street. Information at 462-0083. Uh, for those of you who are just joining us, my name is Doug McKenty. I'm speaking with Michael Rupert, uh, peak oil expert, this morning here on KZYX. Um, Mr. Rupert, can you talk a little bit about the Arab Spring? What do you think is going on there? We're just hearing so much about Syria in the news. And so it's just, and plus this this military action in Libya that seems uh, outrageous to me. Congress is trying to uh, get the president to conform to the War Powers Act, uh, which he is not doing, and uh, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, what's going on over there? It just seems to be like more and more 
military and political uprising? Well, uh, Middle East and North Africa has been one of the poorest, most stressed regions in the world. But I think it's a bit of a misnomer to call this an Arab Spring implying somehow, which is what the media would like you to do, that this is only a problem in the Middle East and North Africa. Well, then how do you explain the riots in Greece, in Italy, uh, uh, some serious stuff brewing in Ireland that's already taken place? How do you explain 40,000 people in the streets in, in Delhi, India, uh, protesting over food prices or really rapidly escalating civil unrest in China, which is having its worst drought in two centuries? And Europe is having one that's a, like a 150-year drought right now. That's, uh, that's killing food mm-hmm. production. Uh, so I, I, I view this as more of a generational revolution. It is, uh, it is people everywhere, young, younger people, realizing that everything has been used up and we're leaving them holding an empty bag with all the debts. Um, that being said, the Middle East is really unstable, and since there's 60% of the known oil on the planet is, is in the Middle East, that becomes critical. Um, uh, I think that the... Western powers are really winking and nodding and standing back as brutal regimes and dictatorships, whether it's uh, al-Assad in Syria or, uh, or uh, King Abdullah in Saudi Arabia or in Yemen uh, or in any of or Gaddafi. Uh, the, the powers that be are standing back and winking while these revolts get suppressed and crushed because there's no way to bring any better standard of living anywhere in the region. Uh, and the the big underlying theme to all of this in the Middle East is that if things get really out of control, a way to uh, to refocus the energy is to turn all of the all of the pent up uh, anger loose on Israel. And of course, Israel is a nuclear power with with uh, nuclear weapons, and they, Israel will use them. Um, uh, and I have still not ruled out, and I'm kind of predicting at some point. Actually, I was predicting this as, as far back as 2003. Uh, that the U.S. will see the help the Saudi government to uh, to topple and and balkanize the country because Saudi Arabia with 25 percent of the oil on the planet, all the oil is concentrated in, in in the very eastern provinces, very much easier to control. But those are all Shia dominated and uh, would tend to ally with Iran now, which is emerging as a superpower in the region. All right, so we've just got about uh, 20 minutes left in the program. We can shift over, I think, maybe to some of the solutions. We talked a little bit already about what's going on at CollapseNet.com. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know uh, that you've worked with, uh, like we have a local group, a local Transitions Towns group. Uh, I know that you've uh, interviewed those guys, Transition Towns USA. Do you want to just talk a little bit about um, the kind of uh, collaborations that you're developing at CollapseNet to try to um, get people more informed and make connections between people that are informed as to, uh, you know, how to develop a more sustainable lifestyle? Well, CollapseNet was not created with the intent of informing people who didn't get it. Mm-hmm. Uh, CollapseNet was created with the intent of providing a, a place where people who do get it to get all the information and assistance and networking that we can find anywhere in the world that will help them move more quickly to relocalize and to take care of all of their needs locally to build community, to uh, localize food production, all of the things that need to happen if we're going to disengage and, and, and survive at some distance from the economic paradigm. 
but again, I, I really have to come back to how much I'm blown away by how much activity really is taking place out there, and that's what you'll see at CollapseNet. And so we want to facilitate that. We bring the best daily uh, analysis of what's happening around the world so you know what to look for on the World News Desk. That's for our members. That's part of the paid side. But on the free side, we have tons of networking. We have the free Lighthouse directory. And we also help our members uh, identify other members who are close to them by means of proprietary software on a map so that without giving away anybody's address or anything else, you can find the people who are already getting it and, and, and you can form communities with them because that makes your work that much faster when you don't have to explain what it is you're, you're trying to do. All right, well, we've got, we've got some time left here. I think I might open it up for a few calls from, uh, from our listeners in case anyone wants to fill in the gaps here for themselves. 895-2448 uh, will make it happen. And I, ha- I do have a few people that have been trying to get in here, so let's give them a chance. Okay. Uh, good morning. You're on KZYX. You have a question for Mr. Rupert. Yes, I do. Uh, you know, can you please address the issue of, of what I call peak copper? All the alternative energy uh, suggestions that are coming out are all electrical. We're already overconsumption. We're consuming more copper than production. Uh, those miners were 2,600 2, feet uh, underground in Chile. How deep can we go and still get enough copper that we need? Thank you very much. All right. Great question. I would fall back on uh, what one of my colleagues, Richard Heinberg, has said so eloquently. We're at peak everything. Right. We're at, we're at peak fresh water. We're at peak farmland. We're at peak phosphorus. We're at peak everything. And that's because there are 7 billion people on this planet, 2 billion of whom did not exist before oil. Uh, and we're using up everything. And in the infinite growth paradigm, everything requires continued growth and growth in resource consumption. When I was interviewed by the Wall Street Journal after the movie came out, the, the Wall Street Journal reporter said, what's the point of your movie? And I said, infinite growth is not possible on a finite planet. That simple. Uh, and, and, and yes, people who are capable of critical thinking will understand that uh, at a point in time when uh, scavengers and looters are tearing out and ripping out copper wires everywhere because of the, the price of copper, they're tearing down the infrastructure that's already here, so it's not wise to assume that more infrastructure is going to get built with money that nobody has. Yeah, there you go. Uh, all right, we've got lots of calls coming in. I think there are a lot of people interested in uh, hearing what you got to say, so I'll take as many as I can. Uh, good morning. You're on uh, the Thursday Morning Report. Hey, great show, guys. Thanks. Can you comment on, uh, Michael, can you comment on uh, what you think the future of the marijuana market for Mendocino and Sonoma County will be? Mm-hmm. There you go. Okay, I think the the uh, the marijuana markets are softening. I, I I don't think that's a big secret to anybody at this point. Um, uh, I do think uh, that that it's going to play a part because it's it's uh, it's it's by and large a cash business, and it and it creates uh, liquidity. Um, but then again, the issues that apply to that. Uh, to marijuana growing and distribution are going to be the same as all of those affecting uh, all of industrial civilization, which is how do you transport it and how do you absorb the transportation costs, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I, uh, I think that, of course, given all the uses of the hemp plant, we will see more marijuana growing, probably focused more on the industrial, commercial, uh, medicinal uses of the hemp plant, uh, as we all uh, go back to looking to, to plants that are close to where we live for all of the, the uh, benefits they give us. 
But I see the marijuana market getting continuing to get softer, but it will be a, a, a barter item and a trade item. Uh, and I think it's, it, it's an integral part of the economy for this region. Yeah, Michael, I've had an interesting idea about it. Uh, I don't know if you've heard this, but in the colonial days in the United States, tobacco was used as currency at one point. And I, I've wondered, uh, and when you talk about using it as a bartering tool, maybe marijuana could even be uh, a kind of a currency uh, at the, after the dollar collapses. It would be something that could replace it as just the, the sort of primary barter tool that we might have around here to, uh, to make trade with. I don't think there'll be any uh, universal replacement that will mm-hmm. re- replace money across the board. If you uh, uh, if you uh, want to barter something for for like a pound of marijuana and 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 it's a, and they only want ten ounces, how do you give change? I mean, so th- there's some obvious issues there. Right. Uh, uh, but um, all of these little things will will serve um, useful purposes. Nothing will replace money or currency. Right now, gold and silver are doing exactly what I said that they, that they would do. And while we're in this transition phase, which may last for several generations, uh, to a steady-state economy uh, where fiat currency no longer exists, uh, gold and silver are great ways to protect the wealth you have, especially against inflation. Um, and what you want to do is preserve as much wealth, that's not money, uh, from one paradigm to the other. So it's going to be a mixed bag, and what, what will work in one region may not apply in another. All right, very good. Uh, lots of calls coming in, so here's another one. Uh, good morning. You're on KZYX. Hi. I'd like to bring the, bring it back down to small and humble. A mm-hmm. um, couple of things. One is, um, whew, and in, instead of like local currencies and trying to replace the dollar... Um, because what we identify as as a fiat, uh, fiat currency, uh, as a you know replacement representative currency, um, how can we get the most out of it? So um, anyway, an idea I have that I think uh, bears some thought is um, simple living credits. Uh, instead of making a currency, and this could be at many different levels in the marketplace. Uh, in the local government or however however it would play out, but to actually give people that are already instead of waiting <laughs> instead of waiting for the collapse of people that have sure. been seeing it coming for a while, people that are living uh, simply uh, could actually get credit to get what they need to, to have to, to, to require less of the monetary community. Mm-hmm. Uh, Anyway, and then the other thing is uh, another thing I've been thinking about for about 10 years, which maybe its time has come to be taken seriously, is, um, well, I can't think of a better name for it than the poop stove, which is, which is a marketing problem. But anyway, um, uh, we need to stop putting the poop in the water. We need to uh, make it safe so it doesn't carry disease. And it's already a natural fuel. And if we just change the way, if we get the poop out of the water and start burning it for fuel, it starts saving three problems at once. And it can happen at a lot of different levels. I'm interested in the most simple living level. Um, Anyway, I had another idea. But those two, um, oh, I guess the other thing is, is like, you know, the, the hammer metaphor or whatnot. There's probably a, a, a use for the hammer, too. 
that if we can uh, re-congregate ourselves instead of uh, everybody that has the same tools getting together and going, yeah, yeah, we should do this, it should be like this, if we can congregate in ways where there's uh, a whole nice toolbox full of tools all uh, coming together about uh, the problems and the solutions, then we have access to the talents and tools. It I mean, is just need to congregate um, differently. So. A mistake, I think. That to thank you. Yes, thanks for the call. Yes, to to sit back and and try to create or define a toolbox for other people in other places. My experience here in Sonoma County is that there's a whole bunch of ad hoc stuff just taking place because people are realizing, number one, that the most important thing to do is to find ways to do business without involving a bank, without exposing yourself to the old, the, uh, the dying economic or political paradigm. Um, and so we see things like share exchanges cropping up where people do time banks and all of these things are being improvised on a local level. Given uh, the look around that people do right where they live and say, what have we got to work with? Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll do your painting on the side of the house if you give me five pounds of your butternut squash and three pounds of berries or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and all, that cannot be legislated, and nobody should attempt to limit the ways, the, the, the creative ways that people can find to get things done. With regard to the poop water, I have serious questions on energy return for energy invested and whether it's sustainable. That may be something applicable locally. I think it's a big mistake to try it, to, to, to sell something like that universally that may not work given the circumstances in uh, each location. Yeah, I mean, I've had thoughts before. There's methane generating septic tanks that they make right now. You, you can, you know, at, at certain expense, kind of uh, rig up your house to be fairly self-sustaining, but it, it is expensive to do right now, and, and I don't know uh, on a large scale if it's really, if it's really there, it's really practical. Yeah, and, and, and that's why everybody has to, has to deal with the situation that's specific to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm in a I, I, I'm in a beautiful house on uh, on uh, on two acres. I have a wood burning stove, so now I've got you know three cords of wood on hand, and uh, I don't have solar panels. And I'm not I'm not sure I'll have time to get solar panels. Okay. But you work with what you have to build toward what you need, realizing just start from Maslow's hierarchy of needs, the basic things you need for survival. Uh, I just did Tom Brown's Tracker School in February. All of that's nice. basic too. You start with shelter, water, food. And you build from there uh, up, um, rather than try to recreate a life or a lifestyle that looked like the one that's going away. I did want to take a second because I noticed on CollapseNet.com that uh, you had been developing a relationship with Tom Brown. So how's that going? I mean, really, really getting back to the earth. Yeah. Well, Tom's a great guy. Um, he and I hit it off and became fast friends almost immediately. I went up with my assistant, Max, and did uh, Tom's basic course in February. And spiritually especially, we found that, uh, that uh, Tom and I were on the same page. I'm an out-and-out overt guy I mean, I have no problem saying this now <laughs> because it makes absolute total sense. It's yeah. like the Native Americans all taught us. Uh, it's that the uh, the earth-based religions lived from the, a living Bible of the earth that wasn't interpreted by man, and there are very uh, direct cause-and-effect relationships. If you live in harmony with this planet, in balance with this planet, and with respect for all life, you stand a much better chance of survival 
than the old species of petroleum man uh, does by by living in in uh, in a mental construct where humans are separate and distinct, and we've given been given dominion and control over the planet, and it's our obligation to grow, loot, plunder, and destroy. Those people can suffer the consequences of those actions. The more uh, people who understand that sustainability has to do with a fundamental, basic, and even sacred relationship with the planet on, on which we live are going to be much more likely to survive, like the mammals were, the early mammals were, when the dinosaurs died out. Yeah, there you go. That's uh, quite the apt metaphor, I think. All right, I've got some calls coming in. Just a few minutes left in the program, so let's see what the people have to ask here. Uh, good morning. You're on KZYX. You have a question? Yeah. Um, you, Doug, asked a really good question. My favorite question a uh, half hour ago or so uh, of your guest, you asked, in times, you know, Pico, when is it going to happen? You know, five years, ten years, and and the answer was five minutes. Right. But with the but with the condition of like, well, you have to define that. So if we could define that really quickly, I'd like to re-ask that favorite question of mine and, and define it as, if I could, uh, something like, you know, if America, sixty percent of America drives cars, let's say we define, uh, you know, the crash of civilization as we know it as really only the rich people drive cars now, and only 10% drive cars. I think that would be a totally different face than we have now. <clears throat> totally rearranged. Uh, and so what's, what would, given that, what would be the time scale okay. uh, with peak oil that that's actually, we're going to really, you know, there's only going to be one kind of beer in the grocery store, and there's no bolts left, and mm-hmm. Home Depot and whatnot. We'll be there by next year. Okay, but if you say next year, then you start to remind me a little bit of, uh, of that evangelist that said that rapture is going to happen. Oh, no, wait, it's going to happen in o- October. I'm not picking an exact date. You're the one who tried to back me into the corner of picking a date. Uh-huh. No, so no, I'm not pack- no, no, not a date, not a date, just kind of like a general, like, one year, two years, 15 years. It's happening I mean, I'm- right now. All well, markets be- globally are imploding. Production right, is off globally. Oil is unaffordable. There are one billion people in danger of starving to death, according to the UN, one in every seven human beings right now. What do you need to see? Be, you know, well, I need to see something change, because all these things, it's been like that for a long time. No, they, they have not. Yeah. They're they, they, they getting progressively worse. Starvation is, these are food riots that are taking place around the world. And food riots are very, very ugly. Just because your feet are dry and you're standing on a deck of the Titanic that isn't water yet, you don't have the right to say that it isn't happening. Well, I'm sure it could be happening, but I want to know, my favorite question on the topic is, when will it happen to my dry feet? It's just, well, then, then I will say I cannot possibly give you an exact date. I can give you a window. Right. And your window is a year. Or less. Yeah. Right. Yeah, there you okay. go. Well, we'll check back in a year, and we'll have another conversation. All right, fair enough. <laughs> Thanks for the call. All right, very good. Um, Michael, there was a, there's a tidbit on, uh, on your website, actually, about the people that are coping. I think it, it can become depressing, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, when people start to really dwell on this mm-hmm. particular topic. So, um, you know, a few minutes left in the show. Can you address that? How yeah, do you we deal have, with that? We have incorporated that all along. Anyone who is only preparing for collapse from a physical standpoint is not going to make it. Yeah. The emotional and spiritual strains of this 
are so great that without a sense of community and without spiritual and emotional preparation, you will not be able to to function through this. You you know you're going to go as nuts as a lot of the people are already going nuts around the world. We have uh, Carolyn Baker, my dear friend, who writes a weekly column for us, which is all about emotional preparedness. And there are heart and soul groups springing up throughout transition the, the transition movement. Uh, and there is a lot of community and, and emotional and spiritual support building, which is absolutely essential. I mean, last night after reading the stories, and it was so obvious that the markets are imploding uh, right now, uh, and, and the EU is in, a, uh, is in a panic state and Fukushima is getting worse, and I just made the rounds calling people here in, uh, in, uh, in, in, in Sebastopol, and it's like, oh, man, this is... And, and we all supported ourselves through this. And if you don't have that, you're going to have a really hard time. Yeah, I mean, even you know, just paying attention to the news sometimes gets me down. <laughs> so, well, I got to read 150 stories a day. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, all right. At least I'm chuckling about it right now. Okay, let me try to get one more call in here. Um, good morning. You're on the Thursday morning report. Do you have a question for Michael Rupert? I was wondering if Mr. Rupert had any remarks about this strange new germ that showed up in Europe yeah. and how that fits into the bigger picture. Well, um, if, if anybody who's read Crossing the, the Rubicon knows that I devoted quite a bit of time in that to gene-specific bioweapons, biowarfare. I don't think this is it. I am really seeing, and, and I think you have to be dense not to see, that Mother Earth is in complete revolt trying to rid herself of an infection right now. Uh, that's what global warming's all about. That's mm-hmm. that's the species die off. We're, we're we're in a sixth mass extinction. Ten thousand species plus going dead a year. Um, and 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 so I I look at this as more symptomatic of the fact that this planet is just seeking to restore some kind of balance to save all life on the planet. And there's definitely going to be bugs that uh, that uh, that arise. I have no idea where this e- this this uh, particular E. coli strain came from. But I can, you can bet there's going to be a lot more of it, and you can also bet that the greatest devastation from these uh, germs, microbes, whatever, is going to come in the major cities. That's another reason to be out of a big city. Yeah, I mean, that is kind of uh, what it's boiling down to. To me, is uh, if you're living in a big city right now, you need to think twice. You need to have a, a plan, I think. <laughs> Yeah, uh, how to get out to the countryside because there, you know, as soon as a, a big city doesn't have a food supply for three or four days or or runs out of fresh water, um, then it's it's going to get ugly really fast. And we'll see that this year. Mm. Yeah. Do you actually do you have any thoughts as to where uh, that might even begin? I mean, I, I think the water crisis maybe like San Diego or in in the Southwest. Um, I would combine the water crises, but with the fact that also you see uh, states going bankrupt and uh, collective bargaining being destroyed, pensions being looted. Look at look at the biggest riots of the 1960s. Where were they? Detroit, Newark, Los Angeles, and Chicago. Mm-hmm. Those are also four or five of the weakest states in the country right now, where where civil unrest is brewing. Uh, and I think we'll see probably the same major cities uh, going up again. Of course. Detroit's pretty much a ghost town right now. It's about half the size it was, but the crime rates are absolutely out of control as police departments are being axed all over the country due to budget cuts. So, right. 
Well, we've just got about a minute and a half left. I think I'm going to uh, shoot out one final question in terms of, uh, you know, what should people do? What are the solutions here? Do you think that local government is a, is a good source of uh, putting your energy, you know, into trying to change things on that level through local government? Or is it really just about getting, you know, you and your buddies together and starting to think of an emergency plan here? All governments... Uh, larger than uh, municipal and county governments are absolutely useless. They are incapable of producing any useful solutions. It's a waste of time to try to influence them. Don't even try to, to ask Washington to do anything or your state government. Mm-hmm. There is, There are many bright lights. I just spoke in Nevada City, and the mayor was out with these shelters, and, and I see a lot of responsiveness emerging in local governments. Uh, maybe I'd like to see more, but don't give up on that. That's where you can still have some influence. All right, very good. And about 30 seconds left in the, in the program, Michael. So if you'd like to uh, make some concluding statements and maybe talk a little bit more about CollapseNet.com and how people could get involved. Okay. Uh, first of all, I'm really gratified. I mean, I am, because of my position as a public figure, I get feedback from all over the world. And I am just cheering on a daily basis as to how fast people are waking up and taking action locally with clear thinking. And I'm, and I'm really encouraged about that. You can find out more about all of this at collapsenet.com. We have a large free side. We have a membership-only side where, where our, you know, the, the stuff that costs $20,000 a month to put out is paid for. Uh, but we expedite everything there. We have, uh, I think, uh, 15 or 16 different regional blogs now. Those are growing. We have uh, the Lighthouse Directory. We have the World News Desk. We have software. We're, sponsor, we're starting to sponsor events, and we bring you some great writers um, who are on, who have been on, on the cutting edge of all of this, uh, all of the issues around collapse for more than a decade, and you can find us there. And we really want to help. And uh, just rest assured, we're not alone. We're much. This new species of post petroleum man is much stronger than it knows, and we're going to make it. Well, right on, Michael Rupert. Thank you very much for being on the program. Time's ten o'clock, so I'm afraid we're going to have to call it good for now. Uh, but maybe we'll talk again sometime soon. I'd uh, like to see uh, you get more involved here. Uh, getting as much information out to the people of Mendocino County as possible. So All i got to do is hop on the 101. I love it up there. Got a lot of friends. Yeah, right on. Okay, thanks again. All right, man, thank we'll, you. We'll talk soon.